0: Welcome back, Zen Parenting Radio, podcast number 99 or 100. We haven't quite figured that out yet.
1: 99, you said, I think.
0: Well, it depends on when we push this. Oh, so it okay. might be on tomorrow, it might be on the week from t- uh, tomorrow. But we are delighted because um, today is our very first guest we've ever had. We've had, Woo-hoo! we've done almost 100 shows, and we have had a few occasions, um, a few invitations to have different authors on to promote themselves. But Kathy, you and I are just so darn selfish. We don't want to give the <laughs> mic time to anybody other than each other. Well,
1: we just like our banter. We just like our back and forth. We're very addicted to it.
0: <laughs> so, um, but what I want to start with you, Kathy, okay. just so you can kind of Say who we have on and how we got this person on.
1: Well, today we have on the fantastic Reverend Ed Bacon, and I feel so honored that he's on the show for many reasons. Number one, because years ago, I don't even remember how many years, Todd. Do you? Two?
0: Mm, uh, I don't know. Two or three. Well,
1: regardless, we heard Ed on a Oprah Soul Series. Um it's a uh, she does a ra- she has a radio show for any of you guys that don't know called Source Soul Series on her XM station, and I listen to it probably on a daily basis. I love it. But the first time that I heard Reverend Bacon, I felt such a connection because I was raised. Um, in a Christian church. I was raised Methodist. And even though that's something that I still feel very connected to, I also was embracing other things, you know, other ideas, other ways of um, connecting to love, other ways of feeling connected to spirit and soul. And here was a reverend saying, that's a great thing to do. And I rarely heard that. I I pretty much heard the opposite. And so then you started watching also, or listening, and actually we ended up seeing him on the TV show. Um, You know, she did Soul Series on uh, the OWN Network work. So we got to see Ed in person. And then we just started kind of following him and and appreciating his work.
0: We were little groupies.
1: We were. We were little Ed Bacon groupies. And then the coolest thing that happened is a while back, Ed released his uh, first book um, called The Eight Habits of Love. And so I buy every self-help book out there. I'm telling you. I
0: can vouch for that. (laughs)
1: Like my my whole bookshelf, this is my profession and this is also my personal passion. And when I read Ed's book, it was so tangible and so something that I could understand and grasp and something that I felt like I so wanted to pass along and share but also help him teach. So um, because I teach at Dominican University, I brought his book into the classroom with me. I teach uh, sociology of the family. And every week, we took on a habit and talked about it. And it was so inspiring for me— to watch them get it, because you know what, they totally get it. College students get it. You know, people will say, oh, you know, they're lost in themselves. Not true. These these students understood, and they had fantastic stories to share. So I started emailing um, Ed through Facebook, letting him know how I was using the book, not only for myself, but for my um, teaching. And also, I was using his book in a women's retreat. I was just using it, and I wanted him to know how special it was to me.
0: Right. So then one thing leads to another, and then you said, hey, Todd, there's a voicemail on our voicemail, and what was it?
1: It was um someone who works with Ed named Kim saying, Hey, how about Ed Bacon come on your comes on your show and talks with you guys? And I was like, Oh, it yeah. was a huge
0: dream for me. Our jaws true. dropped. So without further ado, we welcome Ed Bacon to the program. Ed, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> no problem. I'm Kathy you had uh you wanted to take the first question but basically this is a very informal non structured we just want this to be a very relaxing dialogue we have plenty of time to get into some of the guts of the book and some personal stories from Ed in the book. So Kathy, why don't you jump right in?
1: So Ed, my biggest question, like I, you, you just heard me saying in the intro, is I found this book so accessible. You know, like I said, I've read so many books. And this one, I was like, oh, I get this. You know, like these words are so inspiring. But how did you narrow it down to eight? How did you figure out that these were the eight words that would reach people the most?
2: You know, Kathy, I felt guided in this book from the very Moment of Genesis Um, after that appearance on Oprah Winfrey's television show. And she said, I was there with two other guests, and she introduced them first, introduced their books came time to introduce me. She says, why don't you have any books? And immediately I was contacted by 11 different literary agents saying, hey, we can solve this problem for you. Man. Uh-huh. And uh, I took six months to make a decision, chose the perfect person for me, Eve Bridberg. And uh, when I called her to say, y- you're the one, will you be my agent? She said, yes, let's get to work immediately. And uh, it-, it was a wonderful journey. She said, right now, write four different paragraphs, one about each of the four books you would like to write. I sat down, I I wrote a paragraph about love and fear, Mm -hmm. and then began to talk about these practices. And it was all there, just in this moment of epiphany. And it has continued to unfold. But the eight habits have continued to uh, kind of be stable the entire journey.
0: Awesome. Was there any habits, and this is me being a little silly guy, was there any habits that you left off the lifts that you really wanted to be on? like, Or was eight the number from the get-go and you knew it was going to be eight?
2: It was really strange, Todd. Eight was the number from the get-go. <laughs> you know, since since then, I, I've wondered, uh, you know, I, I think a lot about reconciliation and should that be in there. But I think it is in there, th- particularly through compassion and forgiveness and also in candor. I'm sure we're going to talk about each one of these in a few minutes. But um, that's been the other magical thing about it. Uh, eight has been the number of habits all along. Mm-hmm. And that that has helped me uh, in moments of um, of wondering about all of this, that has helped me understand that this is about an ancient message about these eight liberating practices. Beautiful. That I am called to be the delivery system for, or a delivery system for, and the book Eight Habits of Love is a delivery system for something that is. So refreshing and so empowering, so uh, exhilarating that um, you know I, I have a, a, a ball talking about it because beneath the book i 'm talking about these eight habits.
1: Mm. Mm, I love it. And I love that you said that your first two are love and fear, because on the Zen Parenting Show, we talk about love and fear a lot, you know, especially what Course in Miracles says about you have a choice between the two. And I really believe that. And we try and practice that. And even on the show, we talk about, you know, uh, what you said in the candor chapter about two realities that exist side by side. I feel like that's exactly, because Todd and I are, you know, best friends, wonderful partners, but we're not the same. We don't think the same. We don't always have the same choices. And so what we try and do on the show is really talk about how do you bring candor to a relationship. But what you talk about in the book that I think is so interesting with candor is the fear-based candor and love-based candor. Can you explain the difference, especially for parents who are listening?
2: Sure. Well, fear-based candor, I think, is um, actually cruelty. Mm. And that's where you really are doing some kind of um, – actually, you're committing war against somebody. Mm. You're taking them down. When I, um, A part of my life, which is alluded to in the book, is that when I was in my early 30s, I was clinically depressed. went to see a psychiatrist, stayed with him for eight years. And early on, he wanted my wife, Hope with whom I've been married for, I think, 46 years now or something like that. In any case, uh, he wanted her to come in at one point just so he could have her soul in his soul. And then, you know, she didn't continue with us because the issues that we were working on were mine. And... He said, I do want you to know there's a difference between fighting and making war in a relationship. Fighting is making sure that you have been heard. War is taking the other person down. So back to your question about candor. Fear based candor is taking someone down. It is making war. It's cruelty. And all of us have been the victims of someone cruelly making a power play for authenticity by, you know, saying something that really was wounding to our being. The issue for me in candor and love based candor is that. That is illegal. That is just not allowed to attack someone's being. What we're doing is saying when you do X, which is in the level of doing, not being, then I feel Y. And it is that act of love, actually. It is an encouragement for the relationship to go deeper and more durable, and that's what I'm talking about in the the chapter on candor.
0: Well, um, I'll jump in. Obviously, this is a Zen parenting radio, so there's most, you know, the majority of our audience are parents. And in the book, well, one, one quick side note, the thing I like about your book more than most other of the books out there that I've read is that you seem to have a lot of humanness in your writing. And what I mean by that is you explain to your readers how you have made these mistakes. You know, you're a reverend of a church and everybody, I mean, at least sometimes people have this idea that clergy is supposed to have... A certain higher than thou. This book is, you know, a very normal thing of your struggles, and 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 that I really respect the writing that you did, because it just makes it so much more easy to relate to what it is you're trying to say. You don't have to be perfect. It's about progress and not perfection and things like that. One item in the chapter on candor is you talked about there was a person that you knew, uh, a man. I think he was a grown man, and he had a father who really used fear-based candor. Um, and he and his father was imposing his do, his doctrine upon his son, um, and the father thought that he was doing his son all these wonderful services. Yet he was really pushing him away because he was really using fear as a way to mold this little person into who he was. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that specific story.
2: Well, I I um I think that that's a story. That is a universal story. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it's the story of my father and me. It's the story of a chapter in my relationship with my son. Mm-hmm. And let's kind of go to the universal. Uh, whenever a dad <clears throat> tries to impose a blueprint on his son or daughter, or spouse or partner or lover, it, it, it's all the same thing. It's a fear based move, it is a power grab. It is an exercise designed unconsciously to protect me from a worst-case scenario that scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to do is to make sure that I'm not going to be afraid by trying to control the life and the tra- trajectory of someone else. Now, all of us know that's doomed to failure. In fact, any calculation that comes out of a fear-based life is doomed to failure. The only thing that's sustainable are those acts that come out of a love-based life. So in the case of uh, my father, um, I'll tell you something about my father, and then I'll say something about my own fathering. But in the case of my father – My father gradually came to understand that I was in God's hands. Mm. Uh, My mother and I were having a conversation this past Saturday. I was on my way. I was driving over to see my spiritual director for a monthly conversation. And um, I, I (laughs) I really went far afield from the blueprint my father had for me. Um, He was a Baptist minister. He was a politician. He was a public school servant. And uh, he wanted me to be a Baptist missionary in Africa, interestingly enough. And I, uh, I, a medical missionary. And I I said, no, 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 over the course of many years, saying this is, you know, doesn't have my name on it, which relates to the truth chapter in
0: Mm -hmm. Eight Habits
2: of Love. Nevertheless, so my father... Over the course of all of those decisions, and I would send him uh, papers that I'd written or newspaper articles about me when I was in the civil rights uh, in the civil rights march. All of these things were challenges to his blueprint for me. And what happened was, my mother told me in this conversation this past Saturday, she said that people would come up to my father, who was a very public figure in our county and uh, in South Georgia, and would. Um, really feel apologetic toward my father and said, I'm so sorry about your son. You know, he, you raised him to be a Baptist minister, and then you ordained him, and now he's an Episcopal priest, and, 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 and. And she said my father's response over and over again was, you know, my role, I learned, was to invest all that I could in him. And then what he did with his life is God's prerogative, not mine, and whenever any of us can understand in the parenting or any intimate relationship that we're called to love someone and invest in them and bless them and be generous and compassionate with them. And then what they do with that is God's prerogative, or as I say in the book, the beloved's prerogative. All of a sudden there's liberation, there's light, there's joy, and that's that's key. And Just much more quickly about my own relationship with my son, I remember there was a a bumpy time in his life, and he needed to be in a a special school, and we – my wife and I took him to two – I think four different schools just to try them out and I remember he and I were on the campus of this particular school and I was going around showing him now this is wonderful this will be really great for you and this is the best thing for you and then I realized that he was three or four steps behind me he was not looking at what I was pointing out to him he was, in, he was looking at it from his own perspective to see what was going to be best for him and I had an aha moment I had an epiphany right there that said I needed to be three steps behind him observing him mm-hmm. Rather than three steps hmm. in front of him, and he was not observing me if I really wanted to be in the service of my son becoming his authentic self. So I don't know if, if that gets at what you were asking, Todd. But it, it does. Those are the- those are the things that flooded my mind when you asked me
1: that. No, those were wonderful, uh, Reverend, Ed, and it reminded me the the poem that Todd and I love so much is the Cleo Gibran poem. You know about your children are not your children, and exactly. how that constantly reminds me that they are. You know they come through me, but they are not of me. They are here for their own yes. reason, and we have the yes. blessing and the gift of supporting them as they become their true selves, not to make them into little right. us's but to support them in their true selves. So I think you spoke to that excellently with those two Well, stories. yeah,
0: and Gibran, he says, uh, you, can, you can try to be like them, but make them not, not like, like you. you. And in other words, mm-hmm. I mean, Kathy, your two books are all about how we learn about Ourselves through parenting. And I think that's what Jabron was going after. Well,
1: they're Indeed. just they're excellent mirrors. You know, they just tell us who we are. Um, another question for you, Ed, about, you know, your influences, because you speak about Thomas Merton in the book and your experience mm-hmm. with that. And it's interesting because I feel like Thomas Merton has been surrounding me because I saw the Dalai Lama when he was um, in Chicago at Loyola, and he mm-hmm. spoke so much about Thomas Merton. And so he's kind of come into Todd and my world where we've read more about mm-hmm. him. But could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience with Thomas Merton and what you think his greatest message is, if, if it can be yeah. summarized.
2: No, I think it actually can. I mean, I don't want to kind of flatten him out by any means. But um, clearly at the core of his uh, writing and thinking is this business about the true self and the false self. And that's what touched me so much. Um, I, I was chosen by a... Thomas Merton book, actually. I was at in law school at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, went to an anti-war rally, uh, a peace rally, when uh, the U.S. bombed Cambodia. And I was listening to the speeches, and uh, one of the chaplains said that people like me who actually were privileged and were in graduate school on a deferment instead of fighting in Vietnam had at least the responsibility of being in solidarity with our, with our brothers and sisters who are on the battlefield, and figure out where we would stand on this war. Well, he had me. That's one of the most compelling moral arguments I've ever heard. It's it's the it's the classic moral argument of solidarity that we're all in solidarity with one another. So, I went to his office after this rally, and I said, "Okay, you've got me. Um, give me a bibliography." And he and he just. Tossed the bibliography across the table, uh, across the desk at me, and I l- started looking through it. And Thomas Merton's book, Faith and War, Faith and Violence, chose me. And um, I went to the campus bookstore, bought it, began to read it, and just devoured it. And then that went from one Thomas Merton book to another, to another, to another to the degree that now I was reading more Merton than I was law. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of a law exam, a final exam, I took a break and was walking outside. And literally, I mean, I was, I was, I've been marinating myself in Merton's thinking about how God has planted in each person, this beautiful word that we can't, manufacture, that we can't create. It is of God and it is God inside of us. And that to live without discovering that true word is to live your false self. And to discover that true word is to live your true self and it is also Merton's definition of what salvation is Mm -hmm. so salvation rather than trying to keep yourself out of hell forever it is discovering your true self here and now so I was walking on this break on the law school final exam and I I heard this an audible voice say, "Are you an attorney?" And of course, I knew that that was a question about my false self or true self. Is your false self or your true self an attorney? And I said, um, "You know, I'm not an attorney." And then the then the voice said, "If you're not an attorney, do you need a law degree?" Mm-hmm. And false self, true self. I said, "Nope." And then the voice said again, "If you don't need a." If you don't need a law degree, do you need to finish this law exam? And I said no, and I kept walking. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most liberating moments of my life to turn my back on a false self-narrative that I had constructed for myself. I was the constructor of that. And to say no to that so that in the empty space created by that, then my true self narrative could develop. And that's when a human being's life is in gear, is when they say no to all their false self narratives so that they have this empty space where their true self narrative they can then come alive.
0: That's fascinating, and the the words I'm writing down as I'm hearing you talk is, uh, I, I, I wrote down the words quantum moment, and quantum moment, mm. I'm sure it's been used many times, but where it comes from for me is Wayne Dyer has that um, movie, I forget what it's the called, shift. but he talks about uh, quantum moments, and it's, it's a moment in time when you just kind of know what you need to do, and on this show, Ed, we talk a lot about the difference between the brain and the heart, and my whole journey mm. is to get outside of my brain and into my heart, and I would uh, I don't know if this would be accurate or not, but my guess is when you walked away and never returned to that law school exam, that was your heart talking. And even though there's probably parts of your brain that says, is this a really a good idea? Right. I mean, all the yeah. repercussions from this this decision that you're making without even considering it, it would have, I mean, was it frightening? Was it revealing? Was it relieving? How, how did it feel?
2: It felt exhilarating, relieving, uh, joyful. It was Thrilling, mm-hmm. And there was um, no sadness, no mm, negativity, anything like that. Now, I immediately called Hope, <laughs> now my wife. She and I were living together at that point. She was at Vanderbilt doing her graduate degree in speech pathology. I called her so excited, and she was the opposite. I, <laughs> I mean, she said, you what? And then you can imagine my parents, who were footing the bill, were mm-hmm. not excited by this. Oh, yeah. um, and that just led to many things. But in terms of hope and me, it led us to 20 hours of premarital therapy yeah. mm. with another campus minister mm. in which the kind of the core currency of those 20 hours was this business of the true self that marriage is about encouraging the other person to be his or her true self mm. and that when you do that you've really got a marriage contract you've got a marriage covenant and your marriage is in gear and i think that's the case with every relationship Mm. absolutely
1: the the language that we use a lot and obviously not so many people do so i'm not sure where we got it is the spiritual partnership you know where mm-hmm. you are on the you're connected to um, help each other grow support each other grow and become more their true selves and just like hope experience sometimes it's scary because you're not quite sure how the outcome is going to be because that may be not that's not how you were raised or what you saw for the future but that's where right. you really got to be present with it
0: well and the foundation of a family in my opinion is the marriage I mean, obviously the parenting and the fatherness and everything is is important, but the foundation is the marriage. And, you know, we talk about, uh, Kathy and I talk about how we don't look to each other to make me, I don't look to her to make me happy. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this well, but I need to uh, be supported by her to make myself happy. But I do not look to her to make sure that I'm happy. And I think a lot of the times in a marriage we tend to say, "Oh, my, my spouse just isn't making me happy anymore," and I think we need to look at ourselves and see how are we supporting our spouse to make sure that they are living the life that they were sent here to yeah. send to yeah. be? So:
2: I could agree more. I, the responsibility is always on me. Yes. Um, we have uh, some guidelines that we use here in our meetings. And uh, one of the guidelines is 100% responsibility. Mm. I, uh, my my other mentor, Thomas Merton was my mentor who died before I met him, before I started reading him. My other major mentor, in addition to my parents, but the other major mentor was Rabbi Ed Friedman, and his definition of maturity is taking responsibility for your current state of being, mm. and he says the the measure of, of an immature person is to blame somebody else for their lack of happiness or, or 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 what a mature person does is say i am in this particular state of being i have to own how i got here and when somebody is doing that then you really want to be around them because you know that person also gear with his or her life. Right.
1: Yeah, you can feel it. You feel their authenticity you and you just you just like being in their presence. I, I couldn't agree more.
2: You know the the stuff about feeling somebody's state of being relates to the this scientific, albeit mystical, notion of of a magnetic force field that mm-hmm. is around each person. And What feelings we have and what values we are incarnating and making tangible literally create um, a force field around us. And other people can feel that and we can feel it in other other people.
1: Mm, I love that.
2: Really important.
1: Um, you know, Ed, we're getting to the end of our live portion of the show, even though we're going to continue past it. So, you know, we still okay. have things to talk about. But just to, you know, kind of complete this live portion, one of my big questions for you is, have you considered writing this book for children? Like using the same eight habits, but making it for kids? Because we're talking to our girls about this book, you know, in our own language, which I think is important. Yeah. But I would love to have some pictures to go
2: with it, too. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really touched by that and Mm. the answer is yes. And you know what Kathy, when when different people who are not in physical communication with one another have the same or resonant ideas, that's my clue that the Holy Spirit is working, Mm -hmm. that the spirit of the universe is working. And the first person who came up with this idea was uh, my book coach. And he had so much fun helping me kind of structure this book. And he said that he hoped that um, the first book that we would write um, after this would be Eight Habits of Love for Kids. Yay!
1: Mm. That makes me so happy.
2: Uh, yeah, we're in. So um, you really have encouraged me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you good. don't know how potent... You don't know how potent that
0: encouragement is. Well, thank you,
1: you you know that two people in Chicago will be using it a lot. That's right. So. <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
0: Very um, good. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, first, we haven't talked about our three partners, and we've got to catch the, get them in so they don't get mad at us. So our three partners are Avid Company, Painting and Remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area, 630-956-1800. Number two is Helping Hands, Made Services, uh, uh, made Services all over the Chicagoland area. And finally, the Tree of Life Chiropractic Center in Elmhurst, Illinois, check them out if you need any chiropractic stuff. So, um, to close out the end of this live, don't go anywhere. Everybody listening, don't go anywhere. Um, uh, we're talking to Reverend Ed Bacon. His website is eighthabitsoflove.com. And, uh, we're going to talk for hopefully up to another 30 minutes. If you can give it to us, Reverend Ed.
2: Absolutely, yes.
1: And one thing I'd like to say about Reverend Ed's website is obviously that's a place you can find his book, but you can also find um, his blogs, you can find videos. And I read his blogs because, um, Reverend Ed, you've been connected to the Huffington Post lately too, haven't you?
2: Yeah. The the man you mentioned earlier, Ken, um, he has arranged for me now to have um, – Writing privileges at Huffington Post, Washington Post, Beliefnet, Psychology's Day, and Oprah.com. So um, you all, we will, we will have uh, links. To every one of those at my website. So my website is the go-to place, love.com.
0: and that's the and number we'll 8 you
2: to all of those. Yeah. Yes, that's Nob- the number eight.
0: eight yeah, left. I've got a,
2: I've got, I've got a new thing coming up uh, soon uh, this week uh, on the movie Lincoln and how the eight habits of love play into Lincoln's oh, life. That's so, oh, i All
0: right, that's yeah. awesome. Um, so everybody, keep on listening. Unless you're listening to live version, um, we're just going to take a quick five-second pause. And uh, for those of you who are listening live, we'll hear you next week.
1: Thanks for listening. Thanks
0: for listening. And doctor.
1: And we're back.
0: All right. First of all, Reverend, I got like so many things I want to ask you and I can't believe that we've already halfway into it. So I'm a little (laughs) frustrated, but I'm trying to be present. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. Um, I want to talk about a story in the book, um, and it's towards the beginning. Stephen Mitchell is somebody who you interviewed on Oprah yeah. Radio.
1: And we actually heard that um, interview. and it oh, was, did was We did. And then it was fun to read your book and be like, you remember that interview, Todd? Like, we had a good time with that. And I feel
0: like this is just an extremely valuable thing uh, to talk about. So I'm wondering if you can give us that brief story about Stephen Mitchell and, and, sure. and what it was all about.
2: Yeah, I, and and I am going to hook it up with the earlier comment. We the other conversation, an earlier conversation we were having about a, per, a person's force field. Um, Stephen Mitchell is this an amazing scholar, um, and he is uh, he practiced Buddhism for decades. It um, I mean he carries such a Zen calm about him that. Um, I can feel it and I was feeling it in the Chicago radio studio at Oprah, um, Oprah's studios, uh, when I interviewed him. And interestingly enough, I just heard from the Oprah people that that's going to be rerun soon to, um, on Oprah's soul series. Um, so here we are and we've talked about his life, um, Stephen has translated many of the world's most revered uh, wisdom writings, from biblical stuff to the Tao to the Gita, on and on and on. So um, I asked Stephen, um, he he was telling me about sitting with this Korean um, Buddhist um, teacher for several years, and I asked him um, what was the most important thing he had learned. Now, I just want to punctuate here that we are in this zone that his force field has put us in. And Stephen says, in the quietest, most reverent way, he said, I learned that the universe is kind. Well. I was arrested, just totally arrested, and I was brand new to radio and had been taught, you know, no dead space. But I just went dead because <laughs> it was not out of out of anything other than just reverence and running a million tapes in my head hmm. about, um, oh, they can't be, but Stephen saying it and, you know, all the c- – all the all the souls uh, that are in my soul, all the voices in my soul, were you know having a debate, and finally um, I I received this deep calm, and said, "Of course, that's correct." And then, subsequent to that, um, that took on all sorts of ripples in my life, of transforming me. From a very narrow, fundamentalistic, negative, kind of um, fear-based view of life to an understanding that um, the creation is good and it's blessed. And we are called to pass the blessings of the universe and the creation on to others to remind them that the universe is kind, just as Stephen had reminded me that the universe is kind. And then later on, interestingly enough, I used this, the following quote in a, in a wedding homily I did this past Saturday with these two scientists who were marrying But Albert Einstein said that deciding whether or not the universe is kind is one of the most important decisions any human being can make because once you understand that the the universe is kind, then you will use everything that you create in a kind way which is the essence of the chapter on generosity, um, which is what you're talking about. So, yeah, that's one of the most important moments in my life. That's another quantum moment.
1: Yes, beautiful. And, you know, that is so important because just like you were saying, you know, when— that's not something that we're really taught when we're young. You know, most of the time right. it's that life is hard. You know, those cliche statements, life is exactly. a struggle. You know, you just got to get right. through it. And so it's such yeah. a shift, yet, like you said, it's a mental shift. But really, your heart knows it's true. You know, your heart knows it's true. And and I think, uh, you know, I was telling telling you about my college class where I'm teaching your book. And that's one, one of the first classes that I have with them. I talk about that Einstein quote, whether you believe, mm. you know, the universe is a mm. safe place, is a kind place, mm. because it sets mm. the tone for the entire... Higher for Indeed. their learning, and um, and it's so important. Go well, ahead.
0: well, when we talk about on our show, you know, the ten o'clock news. We live in Chicago. You can you know what the ten o'clock news is like, <laughs> and we simply choose not to not to watch it. And sometimes we get criticized by friends or whoever, and say, "Well, you don't know what's going on in the world." Now, I, I do watch my thirty minutes of national news just because it's important for me to be informed, but our argument to that is, you know, there is a lot of ugliness in the world out there. But you know what, there's a, a million gestures of generosity and things out there. It's just for whatever reason, in this weird setup we have, it's not newsworthy. But you know, just this morning, I was reading on Facebook that George Lucas, my idol, because he made Star Wars <laughs> is going to give away the majority of the $4.05 billion that he just sold the Star Wars rights to Disney. Most of that's going to go to education and that's wow. that's as newsworthy as as all the things that we see on the ten o'clock. And
1: inspiring. News. You know, Absolutely. that that actually helps Very. us. It helps us. Yes.
0: So Indeed. yeah. We talked about generosity. Um and, and there I, I think I would just challenge our audience and challenge ourselves to there's wonderful gestures out there. You just kinda have to know where to look. I mean, if you're looking at right. the ten o'clock news for those examples, you're not going to find it. Look at other. I mean, I, I've looked at my wife's Facebook uh, pages, and it's all Marianne Williamson, and I mean these wonderful and Ed Bacon, Ed Bacon <laughs> um, <laughs> items of inspiration. So you just need to surround yourself with that stuff, and it doesn't mean you stick your head in the sand. But you need to balance it out with the goodness that's going on out there.
2: Precisely. Well, in my mind, that re- this relates to a point I make in the book about thanksgiving or gratitude and since you, know, you and i are talking close to thanksgiving i i I've, i'm in the i'm in the thrall of thanksgiving right now i'm i'm just feeling so grateful every day for so many things at at all saints church our, our faith community here in pasadena we uh, we teach leaders to end all of their meetings with uh, a time for appreciations and regrets. And what happens is the force field, the emotional force field changes in that room once people begin to talk about why they're grateful. And oftentimes it will bring attention of the rest of the committee to a moment in the meeting that maybe nobody else noticed but this person who's giving thanks and when that happens people realize that so much more was happening in the course of the meeting than they were aware of and that when you enter into as the 12 steppers tell us the attitude of gratitude then you're able to see more of life as it really is if you are glued to a fear-based media outlet that is only trying to whip you into a frenzy through sensational reporting, then you never get to understand that there are all these acts of kindness going on that are much more numerous and are keeping the world going than the acts of heinous crimes violence and dishonoring of another human being
1: exactly and our attention isn't drawn there that's the you know that's the thing is we're all driving down the road or walking down the street and we're all passing each other and we're living in harmony yet we're only drawn to the things that are dramatic or negative
2: exactly well i I must just Call attention to the quantum moment I'm taken by your phrase here um, that took place with Thomas Merton. I mean, he literally was walking down the street one day in Louisville, Kentucky, having had a doctor's visit. He had left the uh, monastery to come for a doctor's appointment. And all of a sudden, he had this epiphany where he saw everyone as carrying this divine light inside of them yeah. and he said all of a sudden he realized that it was a delusion to think that religion or monasticism or spirituality is to call us to be separate from one another or to be higher or more important or more pure than somebody else holier than thou but rather it was for us to connect to absolutely everyone realizing that they carried God within themselves I Archbishop Tutu often talks about how every human being is a God carrier. And that is a different way of looking at life than to see people as mean or fallen or deformed or whatever.
0: Right. Well, and you talk about your um, uh, your ministry there in um, Pasadena, and I'm just so drawn, like, I'm, you probably hear this all the time, like, oh, I just wish you were the pastor at my church, and you probably hear <laughs> that all the time. But one thing that, uh, in the, from the book, you use the term, uh, apparently after 9-11 happened, I think your church adopted a doctrine or, or some type of policy of the term interreligious, and that is um, so meaningful to Kathy and I about mm-hmm. what that means, because a lot of times religion seems to separate, and it drives yep. me absolutely crazy. And when you use the term interreligious, like there was a, there's another story, and I'm, jump, I'm throwing two stories at you at once, but there was that preacher in Florida who wanted to burn the Quran mm-hmm. and you brought somebody into your church to explain the Koran, and I just think that's so amazing. And I was just wondering if you can maybe talk about that term with us.
2: Sure. Um, well, the story is, um, we have a, a very rich interfaith, um, community here in Los Angeles. In fact, we're gathering together this afternoon to talk about violence in the Middle East. And, um, we always come together in moments of crisis. And then we also celebrate one another with one another as well. And, uh, after 9-11, we gathered at uh, the mosque near uh, University of Southern California, downtown Los Angeles, and an imam spoke and said, to be religious in the 21st century is to be interreligious. And you know, many historians are saying that we were ushered into the 21st century by 9-11 anyway. And that mantra set itself up just to repeat itself in my heart and soul and mind regularly, and I started preaching it, and it it has become a kind of a mantra for my entire faith community here. So we look at everything from an interreligious perspective. Um, There are small groups that uh, study other faiths. There are people who are re-examining the Bible from an interreligious perspective. I'm constantly preaching uh, from an interreligious perspective, The book, Eight Habits of Love, I wrote from um, an interreligious perspective. Um, Although I I quote Jesus a lot, Jesus is not the only holy person represented in the book, and I try to stay away from conventional um, and doctrinal and dogmatic Christian terms. It is, I think, a responsibility that all of us have to become interreligiously literate and to teach the younger generations to be interfaith or interreligious leaders and to realize that most of us in America live hyphenated lives anyway. Um, Marriage between faiths uh, is more and more common. Um, people having experiences through um, Christianity and in Buddhism and then something else, that's, not a, that's becoming less and less strange. Um, all of us work with people of a different faith, and so it simply behooves us to understand, um, well, this is what it's really calling us to is to go deeper. And when we go deeper, we go more universal. That is my experience throughout life. If we can get to the deepest, deepest, deepest truths about humanity and creation, we will become more and more and more universalistic. Our life continues to expand, as Rilkut says, and we discover that we are one human
1: family. I so agree. And I just I just gave Todd a big smile when you said that about, you know, Jesus and his, that you used him in the book, um, but also many other teachers, because I think that's so important. I remember one of my friends accused me, this was like five years ago, of having a smorgasbord religion, and she didn't mean it in a very kind way. And how I was trying to explain to her, it's not the religion. I'm trying to make smorgas, you know, the smorgasbord. I'm trying to notice that love is coming from all different directions, leading to the same exactly. place, and that they all help me in different ways. And so, exactly. to leave one out because of fear that it means something negative doesn't help me or my family, for that matter.
0: Well, especially I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, you go ahead, Reverend Ed.
2: Well, the, 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 I mean, religion is not an in, in, in itself. It is pointing to what makes for life, what makes for the fullness of life, what makes for the human being fully alive. And so to the degree somebody's focusing on their religion and losing sight of the fact that religion is calling us to have a full life, then I think that's missing the boat.
0: Mm. yeah well and um i i have to tell the story i have a friend from college and then after he graduated he turned to born again christianity and then when we started the show a few years ago we called it zen parenting radio and because nobody knew who we were we reached out to the people that were closest people we knew to say hey listen to the show if you like it spread the word blah 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 and he replied back and said i can't subscribe to it because you use the word the terms And, and this is not a slight against born again christianity maybe it's his own value system. Yeah, he may have taken that. He may have taken that, but he's like, I can't support this. I can't listen to it because you use the term Zen. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And it's so easy for me to be judgmental over something like that. And I just struggle with that.
2: Well, it is a a real struggle. Um, A friend of mine, Ibu Patel, you may know him, he's there in Chicago, um, is a great um, interfaith leader. And he's got a a great new book out called Common Ground. And... um, that's not exactly it but in any case his new book talks about how um, one of the conversations he's had with many evangelicals which the born-again experience could fall into is whether or not you have to hate somebody in order to be an evangelical now what I want to do is not so much focus in on evangelicals but focus in on the religious experience in general does your religion require you, in order to be an adherent, for you to hate someone Mm -hmm. or to exclude someone? If it is, I would suggest that you're not in line with the founder of the religion, because I think that what the founders of all the world's religions had in common was inclusiveness, justice, peacemaking and reconciliation and compassion, not excluding someone or looking down on any particular category of humanity. So it's it's become kind of a litmus test for me. You know, you, you, Jesus said, you 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 know a, tr- a tree by the fruit it bears, and you know people by the fruit they bear, and you know religions by the fruit they bear. If the fruit is exclusion and hatred, then Let's think again.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's such a great message. Um, And so kind of on a different note, but connected, um, you know, something that I believe in very strongly, I think many people do, but they have a hard time integrating it, is self-care. The practice yeah. of taking care of yourself, so like yes. all the things you're talking about, so we can connect to that oneness, so we can know ourselves better, so we can find our true selves. You know, it's essential to take care of yourself so you can get to that place. But what I find when I'm talking with parents is they – if they're struggling, if they're, if they're having difficulty, they – that's when they want to shut off and not – Play, as you know, in a chapter in your book is called Play. Mm-hmm. They think, oh no, things are too serious right now. I have to stay serious. And they don't practice taking care of themselves or doing something fun or having a good laugh because things are too serious. So, could you speak to that, Ed, why it's so important to play even in the midst of a struggle?
2: Well, brain science is very important in this book because it. Uh, uh, um, it embraces the notion that our brains are really a triune brain. Um, we have a, a prefrontal cortex, then we have this up, that is in front of the upstairs brain, and then we have a downstairs brain. And the downstairs brain is the same brain that we share with reptiles. And um, the reptilian brain cannot think; it can only calculate. It calculates whether to flee or to fight. In order for you to get to a process that we would call thought, you have to get up into the mammalian brain, which means you have to free or emancipate yourself from a fear-based life, because fear is the mechanism that moves you down to the downstairs brain. Now, to get at your question, you simply can't solve the problems of life if you're in your fear-based brain if you're in your reptilian brain so the one of the shortest cuts to getting yourself out of your reptilian brain your downstairs brain up to your upstairs brain is to be playful and playful is, involves childlikeness it involves games and involves kidding around but it also can involve telling a story it can involve imagining i I love to imagine with our grandchildren you know what are the clouds saying to one another Mm. you know what are those leaves saying to one another on the tree which is absolutely illogical but it's absolutely of the truth and it's playful and you can't get there if you're in your reptilian brain now the practicality of this is that that parent that is so stressed and so uptight and so focused on her or his problems cannot find a solution to their problems as long as they stay in a fear-based, uptight, overstretched, non-self-care frame of mind. That is the reptilian brain. But as soon as they lighten up, get some play in their line, the double entendre is uh, a fishing line that has a little play in it so you know what's on the other end of the line underneath the surface of the water, as well as being playful, as soon as that happens, then, and that's always an act of self-care, it is always an act of self-care to be playful, then you will discover that your solution-oriented part of your brain kicks back in.
1: Yeah, you know, I love the story in the book about the little boy who said it's going to be a good day because look at yeah. the trees. You know, yeah, that's it's such, my grandson. Oh, I love that. It, it's so true yeah. because kids see things so differently and, and differently in the best way, meaning they have a bigger vision of what things can be. And so that story really stuck with me, especially in the fall. I look at the trees and I think about your grandson all the time.
0: Uh, wonderful. <laughs> um, well. Go ahead. As uh, we have a, a few minutes left, and I'm I'm feeling like we could probably talk to him for another six I hours. Know. Um, mm-hmm. but well, I know. We'll have to do it again. We well, will. There is an open invitation, believe me. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I, we can't talk about your book without talking about um, forgiveness, because out of the yes. eight chapters, I thought by far that was the most meaningful to me. And one thing that I thought was uh, the most interesting was that it, you describe in the book the idea of if somebody harms you, um, if you can't uh, bring yourself to be a good enough person to be able to forgive them, you can at least pray or meditate on the desire to forgive that person. But my question to you, Ed, and this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, what if you're dealing with somebody who can't even bring themselves to desire to forgive somebody?
2: Well, forgiveness, I have learned from receiving feedback from the readers of this book. Forgiveness doesn't work apart from one or more of the other habits of love. Hmm. People are telling me frequently that they paired forgiveness with stillness and then it worked. Hmm. So um, when the paperback version comes out next September and we have a reader's guide will make the point that if one of the habits is not working, then try another one in tandem with it. Mm. Now, the relevance of that to forgiveness is that in the story that I allude to in the forgiveness chapter about my forgiving someone, I realized in a moment of stillness that I was so eaten up by anger and resentment and the desire for retaliation toward this person that I was no longer available to myself, to my work, to my marriage, and to my children. And that is the case when you are so fear-based and grudge-based and resentment-based, just speak of the face of fear in the arena of forgiveness. And once someone in a moment of stillness, it doesn't have to be an hour long meditation period like I do at most mornings, but just in a moment of clarity can realize, gosh, I am not myself, which goes back to your false self, true self thing again. I have, I have left myself. I have left my responsibilities. I have abandoned myself to wanting to, punish this person once that takes place then oftentimes there comes the desire to return home to one's true self and as soon as that happens and somebody thinks about forgiveness then forgiveness begins to work Mm -hmm. as soon as people realize that when I don't forgive I am drinking poison thinking it's going to hurt somebody else but I'm only hurting myself that moment of awareness, uh, epiphany, is something that can lead someone to actually have even just the hint of a desire to forgive. Mm, mm.
0: Well, in, in the book, in, when you're talking about that specific scenario when you couldn't for, bring yourself to forgive this person, I think you said not only did you dislike this person, but you disliked who you became when thinking oh, about it, and that was kind of guitar- your aha moment.
2: That was, the, that was the aha moment. I did not like myself. I had left myself. I had abandoned myself. And I had taken myself to abandon my marriage, my children, and my
0: work. Well, when you say you don't, you don't like your, you didn't like yourself at that point. You know, I, I, we all have different definitions for the ex, the exact same thing. And I noticed, in at the end of your book, you talked about different books that mo- were meaningful to you. Uh, and what, you used the phrase earlier today that that you were chosen by a certain book. Um, and in the back of yours, A New Earth by Eckhart Eckhart Tolle is one that you admire. And that was the Indeed. book that grabbed me. And I always I always, ah. always seem to frame everything out of ego and pain bodies and mm-hmm. things like that. And yeah. uh, it's funny how it just was the right place, the right time for me to kind of incorporate, you know, those mm. sometimes challenging ideas into that book. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, we're all basically saying the same thing using different terminology. Exactly. It's fascinating Indeed. to me.
2: I, I think that is really true, Todd. Mm. It's a matter of finding your vocabulary with which you can resonate. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, somebody was feeding, feeding back to me that um, they heard me say in my book that I, I wanted everybody to find their own spiritual practices so they could find their own authentic self. And I said, absolutely. It's, it's, I don't want anybody to take on my spiritual practices. I want everybody to find the ones that work for them that lead them to emancipate themselves mm-hmm. from fear. And that's the key. And then it occurred to me that to the degree that all of us really become our true selves, our authentic selves, then we will be automatically in a state of global peace because God created us to fit together, not to be at war with one another. And what keeps us from fitting together and what keeps us in war is our false selves,
0: Interesting. And, you know, through reading um, a lot of these books that helped me so much, I, I have a history of sometimes giving the book too much power as if the book is doing all the work. And one thing that I was taught through, you know, reading some of these things is it's not the book, it's it's inside of me. That's just connecting exactly. with it, and because sometimes we tend to give the author or a book so much power that we had nothing to do with it. Really, that has nothing to do with well,
1: it. Well, and it's it's that it resonates with you. It, it's that it connects to that deeper part of you. Uh, you know, I was just thinking about probably the first book that really spoke to me it was my early twenties, and I read Marianne Williamson's um, A Woman's Worth, and I have since read mm. A Return to Love and her other wonderful books. But that I needed that book then, and I think actually yeah. my, my mom gave it to me. And my initial book, I still have it. And there's so much underlined. I remember crying when I was reading it. I needed to know that it was okay to shine and be myself. And, you know, it's it's always a work in progress. You know, it's always a back and forth. But it's the words spoke to me and reminded me of what the potential is, you know, for all yeah. of us, for all of us.
0: That's right. Um, that's right. Oh, that's so well put. Okay, uh, sweetie, do you have um, our little speed round thing ready? Sure. There? Okay. We, we tend to make things. You know, this has kind of been a, a deeper discussion than you know. Maybe sometimes we do. We like to kind of mix it up a little bit.
1: So we have questions for you, Reverend, Ed, and they're they're these ah, are good. these are easy ones. These are fun ones. These are things good. that Todd and I tend to like disagree about. So we're going to see what you think. And the first one is on a show a few weeks ago, Todd and I were talking about Halloween candy. And we got into a disagreement about which Halloween candy was the best we even posted it on Facebook. And so we're wondering to you, please
0: settle the debate. Please,
1: do you think a Three Musketeers or a Snickers is a better candy? What
0: do you go with? Snickers. Yeah. Oh, one down. Yeah,
1: you are are one in the many. I think in the in the uh, debate we did online, there was only two people who liked Three Musketeers. You want to know
0: why? It's because Three Musca- Musketeers what? is horrible.
1: No, it's not
2: horrible. Yeah, it <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right, number okay. two. I have a feeling I'm going to lose this one. Well,
1: I don't know. You know, Hostess is going out of business, and all the the yummy food from our childhood is going away. And two of the things that you they used to sell are ding dongs and ho hos. Do you have any comment on that, Come on, that,
0: Come on. Uh you know, I loved Ho Ho's. Yay! That's that fine. was the wrong answer, whatever <laughs> <laughs> that was That
1: was <laughs> mine. No, that was mine. I was glad. And then my Todd and I always debate about our favorite movies. Um it, well and and he probably already shared with you. His is Star Wars is the Wizard of Oz. Do you have any comment on either of those? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Come on, man. I everybody. am f- I love Star Wars. Yeah, I I have to go with thought on this. (laughs) I mean, I love that action stuff, you know, and I I love Dorothy and all of her friends. yeah, 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 and I love the story. But yeah, I'm a Star Wars
0: person. Oh, oh, wonderful. Oh, two out of three. Okay. What and else?
1: And this is more, this isn't really a debate, but something that Todd and I were talking about last night is you've obviously met a lot of influential people and have had the opportunity to work with a lot of people who are who are spiritual thinkers like yourself. Is there anybody that you haven't been able to work with yet or someone that you would really like to meet? And I guess we could say dead or alive just to kind of keep no, it. No, let's, let's keep it
2: Should alive. Should we stay alive? Let's go alive? Okay,
1: we'll stay alive.
2: Okay. In terms of alive... Gosh, I've met so many wonderful people, but I I would like to go to back to Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. in that I've been around him, but I've never been able to actually be with him And the time that, that I was introduced to him. he I don't know for what reason. He was just not available. I, w- I oftentimes think about how wonderful it would be to go and just meditate with him yeah. or sit with him for a week in his Sangha
0: we are big fans of TechNet. We actually have a poster. What do do we have? Well, it's
1: a picture of Todd and I, and we have his um, quote that I don't think I can do justice, but about us being inter R, and not just terms of Todd and I, but all of us in the universe. So we are inter R. We are all one, as we are saying. So we just couldn't agree with you more on that one.
0: Good deal. Well, and Ticknot, uh the reason I like him is because he doesn't have the best command of the English language, so he writes in small right. words, so it's easy for me to understand what he's talking about. Yeah, so.
1: we can connect Exactly, it. exactly.
0: Well, Reverend Ed, exactly. let me say this. There is an open invitation for you ever to come back on the show, <laughs> and and I don't know if words can describe how um, grateful that I am that you spent the time to, with us this morning. And I just wanted to say thank you very, very, very much.
2: Very good. Thank you very much, both of you. It has been a true joy. Mm-hmm. And it's a really um, inspiring to be with people who um, live and think at the level that you do. Thank you very much for everything you do. God bless you. Thank, Thank you, you, Reverend Ed. And
1: me. you know we'll be in touch and following you on Facebook and at your website, Eight Habits of Love, and we will be connected to you always.
2: Beautiful. Thank Absolutely. you Absolutely. I'm convinced of that. Bye-bye. N- me awesome. too. Awesome. Thank
0: well, you, Reverend Bye, Ed. Ed. All right. Well, this is uh, Todd Adams. I guess we just signed off, right, yeah, sweetie? Yeah, and
1: this is Kathy Adams. What a meaningful hour this was. And for those of you that stayed with us for this whole hour, um, you know, deeply appreciated. And um, please comment and email us and tell us what you thought.
0: And buy Reverend Ed's book because it changed changed me. So
1: 8habitsoflove.com.
0: All right. See you guys next week. Adios.